So back in uh, March of 2002, there was a social experiment that started. Um, it was aired on TV for everybody to watch, and it was a new way to find the love of your life. Right? They picked this single, handsome man to go on uh, multiple, multiple dates with 25 different women, um, sometimes at one time, sometimes in small groups, sometimes one-on-one. And each week for six weeks, everybody watched, and he slowly eliminated um, the ones he didn't connect with, you know, by um, only offering a rose to those that he wanted to hang out with, right? And at the final, he'd pick between these two women to be the love of his life, and they would stay in love forever. Well, this experiment failed, uh, right? The first bachelor started a relationship with the one that he chose, It went for a few months, and then he was like, no, I don't think you were the one. So he went to the runner-up instead, and he dated her for a while, and then was like, no, you're also not the one. And I have no idea what any of them are up to these days. But the experiment failed, so they never aired that show again. Except for the fact that they did. Um, They did air it again, and it has now ran for 28 seasons. Right? And now they have spinoff The Bachelorette, who's gone for 20 seasons, and many, many other spinoffs all around. Right? And it's because they figured it out. They fixed the experiment from the first time, and now every couple stays happily married right, right after this show. Are you telling me that's not right? Yeah, yeah well, you're, you're actually really correct. Um, did you know that only three out of the 27 seasons of finished Bachelor seasons, only three of them are still together? And one of them's last season. They're still just kind of dating, getting to know each other. One's married, and the other one is like, Still in a relationship, unsure where future is going to lead them. But don't worry, The Bachelorette, you know, because women um, involved, it's gotten a lot better. That five out of 20, right, have stayed together. Um, so, you know, a total of eight out of 47, which is like 16%. Um, pretty good odds at finding the love of your life, I would say. Uh, so, obviously, no one watches this show because, like, it doesn't end in real love, right? Um, except for it's actually one of the most watched shows, uh, season after season. Episode after episode, um, the Huffington Post um, wrote an article explaining, like, why do people actually watch this show? What, like, what do they get out of it? And um, I found a little quote from it just, I don't know, tickled my ears. I thought it was pretty good. It says, year after year, viewers watch a highly manufactured depiction of romance that prioritizes a thin, white, cis, heteronormative, and able-bodied lens of love. The competition is a psychologically strenuous exploration of polyamory as a means to monogamy, which simultaneously appeals and directly opposes the sensibilities of its white evangelical base. No matter the gimmicks, the countless crises, or the amount of love bombing and trauma dumping the franchise invokes, fans are still watching. Millions of people watch season after season, and there are hundreds of podcasts and YouTube channels and social media accounts dedicated to discussing in depth each season as they air. Now, personally, I've always struggled with this like, type of show um, because they're like the complete opposite of what most people want, right? Like, especially the audience. The majority of the audience for The Bachelor is young females, um, which makes sense. Like, they're like, oh, love. I just love love, you know? Um, but, like, how many young females would actually be upset if they found out their boyfriend was dating 24 other girls? Right? I don't think a single one would be like, you know, that makes sense. I'm surprised it's not 30, you know? Right? And they're like, you know, I was kissing this other girl last night, but you're the one I'm really falling for. Right? Nobody, no, that doesn't happen. No guy in real life could be dating a girl and be like, I'm falling for you. But last night I was in the hot tub with, you know, three other girls. They were throwing themselves on me because, you know, I'm dating them too. But that's besides the point, you know, and I, I might have kissed them a little, but... I think I actually love you. And the girl would be like, that's the most romantic thing I've ever heard. <laughs> like, it's, it's kind of it's crazy. Now, what's even crazier is that most of the females that watch The Bachelor come from uh, Christian conservative backgrounds. The states that are most watching The Bachelor, Bachelorette, or any of the spinoffs are most of the, the Midwestern or Bible Belt states, um, which is kind of opposite of everything that they stand for and believe they tune in to watch. Now, if you like The Bachelor, I'm not saying you shouldn't, okay? Um, I don't understand why, and I'm not going to lie, I'm judging you. Um, Not your eternity, just your sanity, but... (laughs) 
you know, I've heard the argument that people are like, well, I just like the social experiment side, you know, I just like it. And then, but like out of the same mouth, they're like, so-and-so is so romantic, you know? And it's just, it's just not what life looks like for anybody. Now, there's a purpose to me saying all this. Um, it's that we humans have an issue with the mundane. Right? We're, we're drawn to watch The Bachelor because it's not the norm. Right? We don't actually want those things in our lives. Right? But we do want something that shakes up the mundane every day of our lives. So we live vicariously through these shows and watching other people's lives. Right? And part of it is because like, falling in love at the beginning is exciting. Right? They would never air a show like just showing couples after like 15, 20 years of marriage um, and say, like, watch this next exciting romance story. Right? Because it would just be a bunch of couples that like, love each other despite the passive-aggressive comments. Um, you know, maybe despite like, their in-laws, um, despite the farts. Right? Like, they're still choosing to like, love each other. Right? But like, nobody would watch that show. Because real true love, though, is found in long-term commitment. Right? It's not found in the passion. It's not found in the feelings. One of the main things that leads to infidelity in, in a marriage or in a relationship or unfaithfulness in a relationship is just the boredom of mundane life. The excitement of, you know, sneaking around or doing something outside the norm seems to fuel the passion, right? Ignite a spark that, that maybe you had felt before, right? And you watch The Bachelor because it kind of stirs some of those same feelings or, or those shows that, that spark relationship again in you. Right? But this is the very same issue we struggle with when it comes to prayer. Right? That the most common condition found in the church today and in these very chairs is that we have a general sense of boredom. Right? There are highs and lows to our spiritual lives. Some of you have probably already grown bored about, yeah, of this series. Right? You're like 10 weeks about prayer. Man, I was good after like four. And maybe one of those weeks actually sparked a passion where you're like, I want to start praying more. But now we're six weeks have gone by and you're like, yeah, just not feeling it. Right? It's just become mundane. Right? The mountaintop experiences of our faith after a while wear thin. We find ourselves just like dragging our feet along the narrow path behind Jesus, yawning. Because I also want to let you know that spiritual boredom is not necessarily a sign that you're lapsing in prayer sometimes it just means that you're maturing like in a relationship last week we talked about persistence in prayer during hardships and during the silence when you're not hearing an answer to what you are been praying about we talked about how to build a resilient prayer life but you know what i find sometimes it's actually harder to stay faithful in prayer when things are neither bad nor good right because fidelity and faithfulness sometimes seems boring. We're in our series, Prayer, an invitation to the wonder and the mystery of prayer. We've been going through Tyler Statton's book, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools, and using it as a guide for our series. And I'm a little sad to say that today is the last week of our series. Um, next week, we're beginning our Christmas Advent series, which I am excited about. Um, but I've been really enjoying this series on prayer for my own life. And today's message is titled, Unceasing Prayer. A few years ago, um, I was uh, struggling with some depression again in my life, and I, I returned to therapy. And after a couple of sessions, my therapist came to the conclusion that my depression was really stemming from me being too focused on how boring my life was, um, in general, something like that. Now, this has been a struggle my whole life. I can remember, like, as a kid, like, I, I just lived for the next big thing. It was uh, summer camp and um, our Minnesota vacation, and then it was Thanksgiving with my family, then Christmas with our extended family, you know, and then spring break where we'd go on some trip, and then we'd start summer back all over again. And I, I really have a hard time in my own childhood remembering what happened in the, the days between those things because I've just always been a person who's just looking for, like, the next big thing and just struggles with the day-to-day. Now, part of that is my personality type. I'm a type 7 on the Enneagram, if you know what that means. And the general main struggle in life is just being content with where you're at, um, right? They're constantly looking to what's next. They want to make sure that the next big and exciting thing comes. But usually by the time that comes, they're, they're looking forward to the next big thing because they don't want to be disappointed. 
And uh, I struggle hardcore with like routine, mundane, AKA boring things, right? That's just hard for me. Um, my personality type's biggest sin is considered gluttony because we just want to overindulge in every good, exciting thing. And uh, I'm a glutton for new adventures. Um, exciting new projects that I can start, um, you know, not necessarily finish because eventually it gets boring, okay? Uh, but guys, one of my biggest problems in my life is that I have read the Bible too much. Um, you guys are like, that's a bad thing for our pastor to say. Uh, and uh, part of that is, is that everyone's life in the Bible just seems so exciting. Right? You read through it and they're just like, God taking them on all these crazy journeys and miracles are happening. It seems like every day in their life. And, you know, they get to go on all these new adventures, visit these new places. They're getting shipwrecked and landing on islands. And, like, I'm like, why is my life so boring? You know, I've been, I'm hanging out with Jesus and it doesn't seem to look anything like that. And, um, Right? Like, after I dedicated my life to God, I thought my days would look like that. Yet, most of my days end up with me just sitting in my office alone, um, doing what feels like meaningless office tasks at times, and then going home to kids who are needy and not want to do adventures with me, and uh, a wife who enjoys this boring life that we have. Uh, and uh, that makes it hard for me to stay faithful. Right? Not faithful to my wife or to my family. Just faithful to life. Right? Living a life of fidelity, of faithfulness to what God has for me seemed impossible. And honestly, it still does some days. Now, for those who know me really well, usually laugh at me when I say my life has been really boring because I've actually been on a lot of adventures, a lot of things. Uh, but to me, somehow it still is. Now, my therapist that I was meeting with at that time um, was Christian, and he let me borrow a book. And uh, it's a book on the life of Moses. And, um, you know, when you read through about Moses' life, the first five books of the Bible cover a lot of it. And um, even that, you know, he gave me this book, and it's pretty thick, just all on the life of Moses. And it helped me to realize that there was actually a lot of boring life that Moses lived. Um, and that the reality is that there's a lot of mundane in every Bible character's life. They just don't put it all in the Bible because we want to read it. Right? I'd be like, yep, Moses woke up for the uh, 1,580th time to go be a shepherd today. He watched sheep for all day, and then he slept. You know, and I was like, nobody would read that verse after verse. Right? There were literally decades of Moses' life covered in one verse. Decades. Right? In multiple spots of scripture, it does that for people's, people's life. Right, even Jesus went from being like a young boy in the temple, and next thing we know, he's 30. Now, I hate that. I don't, I'm like, man, I don't want my life to be so boring that somebody could sum up decades of my life in a sentence. Man, that sounds, that sounds horrible. Right, but this is actually, you know, some of you guys may like, uh, I'm definitely not as crazy as Pastor Andrew. Uh, but... This is a struggle in all of our lives, and it's become a constant struggle because of social media and the things that, that get put before us all day, every day, right? With, with social media and TikToks and reels of things, we get constant glances at the, the biggest and the best moments of all these people's lives, right? Even with watching sports or um, celebrities on TV, like you don't see the day-to-day the -day that they just go to the gym and do the same thing every day, day after day, to be a part of the thing that you watch and enjoy, right? And we've started to expect that life should just be full of biggest and best, and we get really bored with the day-to-day. -day. And it becomes our biggest enemy when it comes to prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, never stop praying. In the Greek to English, direct translation, it just says, pray unceasingly. This isn't a rule. It wasn't a set of directions. Right? This comes from the largest love letter you will ever receive, the Bible. Right? And it comes from the greatest being ever to exist who's head over heels in love with you. Right? He's not just here to give you a bunch of rules to try and do. This was him asking for you to remain in relationship with him always. 
Right? Jesus says almost the same thing. He's telling his followers coming up towards the end of his life. In John 15, 9, he says, As I have loved you, even as the Father has loved me, remain in my love. In other words, stay connected to me all the time. How do we remain in that love? How do we make a, the covenant love of God the constant backdrop to the scenes of our lives? So it doesn't seem maybe quite so boring. Right? It's through prayer. Right? This is the point of life. Right? We were created to be in relationship with each other, but also with God. And it was messed up at the very beginning. But God's fixed that to give us that relationship through him with prayer so that at the very end of time when he renews all things, we will just be with him forever. Johannes Hart says, if you can't love, you can't pray either. Praying is loving, and learning to pray means learning to love. Love is really easy at first, right? You can see that in The Bachelor. They're all in love right away. It's crazy, right? The flirting, the excitement, the passion, right? It's effortless all the way through the honeymoon stage, right? You can't help but want to spend every moment with the person that you love. You have a ton to talk about. And even when you run out of things to talk about, just being in each other's presence is enough, right? And love at the end is really easy. Right? Love is easy for that couple that's been together for 40 plus years, right? whose love has matured to perfection, like good cheese or wine. But all those years in between, that's when it's hard. Right? Learning to love when, you know, the, in the midst of building your careers, of raising kids, establishing what you want your life to look like, facing all the trials that, that come when you mix two lives together. Right? This is when the bachelor couples break up, you know, and... Uh, a lot of relationships in general don't make it because of the excitement that that love was built on. It's just no longer there, right? Those are the years that love has to be worked for. It has to be chosen and fought for. But those are the years that, that, that early infatuation is matured into that old couple that has effortless union. Those are the years when love is either won or lost. And like love, prayer comes easy at first, right? Through this series, some of you guys probably prayed more than you've ever prayed in your life, and it feels really easy right now because it's exciting. It's new. You're like, I, I do want to try what Pastor Andrew's been talking about. I want to see what it does in my life. Brendan, prayer comes pretty easy at the end of your life. Right? That's when most people, to be honest, start going, wow, I have had it wrong this whole time, and I want to talk with God every moment of the rest of the life that I have here on earth. Right? It comes really easy. But the years that are important are the ones in between. Because prayer is about relationship, and that means fidelity and faithfulness. Right? Faithfulness is the container in which our prayer life can truly flourish. The author Henry Nouwen said, Prayer does not mean much when we undertake it only as an attempt to influence God, or as a search for a spiritual fallout shelter, or as an offering of comfort in stress-filled times. Prayer is the act by which we divest ourselves of all false beings and become free to belong to God and God alone. Because before prayer is about power, before it's about outcomes, before it's about calling down heavenly armies and, and causing a righteous uprising, prayer is about love and relationship. Right? It's the way that we freely choose the God who freely chose us first. The way that we express ourselves to God, who despite everything, delights in us. Prayer is one of those things that people noticed was different about Jesus. I and mean, we've talked about this, right? The disciples' request of, of teach us how to pray is a request that we keep returning to through this series. Now, some of you guys may not know is that the, the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus prayed in uh, Matthew 6, was not actually entirely original to Jesus. Jesus was adapting um, the opening lines of a Hebrew prayer called the Kaddish, which is uh, one of the three familiar prayers that was recited regularly through, uh, through the Jewish temple all the way back into to old history times. And it goes something like this. It says, Magnified and sanctified may his great name be. In the world he created by his will, may he establish his kingdom in your lifetime, and in your days. Now it sounds kind of familiar, 
to Jesus' prayer. And I'm not trying to say that he plagiarized or something, right? You know, I got caught with uh, much worse, you know, doing English school in school. But what I want you guys to see is that Jesus, when he prayed the Lord's Prayer, he wasn't just showing them a new structure to prayer. What he was showing them was a new way to pray. And he took prayer and he made it much, much more personal. When they asked, teach us to pray, it wasn't about the structure. Jesus was telling them, you need to pray more intimately than you think you should. Right? To pray with the heart of a lover and the discipline of a monk. Because it reminded them of a prayer that they prayed every day of their entire life. And said, take that and actually make it to a God that's personal, not to a God that lives far away. And that's how you choose faithfulness, right? And when you do, it quenches your desires in such a satisfying way that everything else becomes the boring part of your life, right? You'll long to want to spend time in prayer with God because that's exciting, because that is full of love, full of peace, and everything you'll never experience in the world. One of the most famous pastors, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, once offered this advice to a young couple on their wedding day. He says, today you are young and very much in love. And you think that your love can sustain your marriage, but it can't. You will have to let your marriage sustain your love. And prayer is similar because it's about love. It cannot be sustained on feelings and and good intentions and the spontaneous moments that you turn to God. It needs something more. It needs the same type of commitment as a marriage, right, of a relationship. It needs a, a set of practices and rituals so that it can grow and mature and blossom. Right? Just like old couples grow more like each other after years and years of companionship, right? if you want to grow more like Jesus, have years and years of constant companionship with him. Woven throughout the many years of people following God, all the way back to the Old Testament, is this set rhythm of prayer that comes through Scripture. And it grounded that relationship of God with his people. In the Hebrew tradition of the old, um, in the Old Testament, the roots of our Christian faith, there has been a daily prayer rhythm of pausing to pray three times a day. A lot of you guys probably know the story of Daniel in the lion's den. You guys have heard that story. You learned it maybe in Sunday school. Uh, right? And it's found in Daniel chapter 6. Now, the story, for those of you who do not know, there's this Hebrew man named Daniel who was stolen um, away from his nation when he was a child. And he was taken captive into the country of Babylon and, and um, was raised in this foreign land. And they took him because he was one of the brightest students that, that the Hebrews had of the nation of Israel. And they took him and they wanted him to be somebody who would be, use his, um, you know, his athletic ability and his knowledge and his wisdom to better their country. And so he was groomed and raised to be an advisor to the king. And he was literally moments away from being handed over to be like second in charge of the nation when the story of Daniel and the lions didn't happen. Now, one of the things that Daniel was known for was how faithful he was in prayer. But he had prayed daily, three times a day, it says. Morning, at noon, and in the evening, he prayed. Now, some of his uh, enemies, some people who didn't think that he deserved to be second in charge, set up uh, some rules and, and entered in a new law, you know, by going for the pride of the king and uh, said, you know, if anybody prays to anybody else but the king, They should be thrown into this lion's den. And, you know, the king, because he was very prideful, was like, that sounds like a great law. You know, and uh, didn't even, you know, ponder for a moment about it and signed the law into act. And these enemies of Daniel knew that he would spend time in prayer. Right? And so in chapter 6 of Daniel, verse 10, says this was Daniel's response. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home. And he knelt down as usual in his upstairs room. Windows open towards Jerusalem, and he prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to God. Now, he was caught, obviously. He didn't try and hide. He opened the windows, and uh, they threw him in with the lions, and uh, he lived. It's a pretty cool story. Um, These hungry lions didn't eat him, and uh, then when he got out, the king was like, ah, bad guys, you made me do this, and he threw the bad guys in, and the lions were no longer hungry. Uh, but there was this rhythm of prayer that wasn't something that he started. It's something he had been raised with because he saw his family doing it. It had been going on for generations to generations. And you look in Psalm 55, 16 and 17. 
He says, but David praying here says, but I will call on God and the Lord will rescue me. Morning, noon, and night, I cry out in my distress and the Lord hears my voice. And then in every one of the gospels, it reveals Jesus going and praying at regular times with phrases like he went to the temple for the gathering or he went at the set time of prayer. When you read through the gospels, you see that Jesus went at the regular times of prayer to the temple. Jesus also prayed spontaneously right, in his times of needs and for people that he encountered, right, he prayed spontaneously, he also sprayed, sprayed, he prayed routinely, he prayed alone, he prayed with others, he poured out emotions in his own words, but he also prayed guided prayers through the Psalms and the generations that were praying before him. Now, the early church, the first Christian church developed um, through the book of Acts, this is the, the very basis of the church that we have today. And every church really wants to go back and recapture what they had because the, God was moving in power and people would be added to their church numbers, um, multiple numbers each day. Now, they lived this daily prayer rhythm. In Acts 3, 1, it says, Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in the 3 o'clock prayer service. Acts 10, 9, and there, there's a ton of them. I'm not going to go through all of them, but... Acts 10, 9 says, the next day as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up to the flat roof to pray. It was about noon, midday prayer. Now, um, the earliest non-biblical document we have about the church from the early church is called the Didache. Um, and uh, it's this document explaining how the Christian church ran. You should all look it up and read it. It's very interesting. Um, it's kind of like, they had been having this church for a while, and they were like, we need a document that just kind of brings us all together, so we're all trying to kind of do the same things, and that's what this first document was. Um, this has been after all the apostles had um, passed on and different things. But in that document, it's explaining how to be the Christian church and the basic beliefs, and among all those things, it detailed out spending time in morning prayer, in midday prayer, and evening prayer. Have you ever just thought about how do the apostles and the other Christians just keep seeming to be gathered all at the right times. Right? Like in this passage, it says Acts 4, 23 through 24, it says, As soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. And when they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. How did Peter and John, fresh out of court, know where everyone was? Right? They open up their Snapchat. Check all the locations. Right? They send out a mass text, make some phone calls, carrier pigeons. Like, no, obviously none of those things. Right? They went to go, well, at this time, everybody will be gathering for prayer. And so they went there, and everyone was there, and then they prayed. The next time you're reading Acts, just make mental notes of how often it mentions something too similar as as we were headed to the place of prayer, or for the time of prayer, or as we were headed here, uh, we were headed to a place of prayer. And you won't be able to unsee it. The early Christians placed a higher value on prayer than we commonly do today. And I think because of that, they possessed a higher concentration of God's power than we commonly do today. And it's not that God doesn't want to give out the same power in, in, to us today. Is that they were just so in connection with him that they were constantly moving in the ways that Jesus would already be moving in. Throughout the whole of the Bible and into the early church history, prayer was the anchor of the Christian life and community. Some of you guys may be thinking, this just sounds like worn out tradition. right? We have something better. I don't need to have regular times of prayer because I'm connected with God always and anyways. And while that is true, I think there's something more to this regular rhythm of life of just wanting to spend time with God consistently. I believe this is, um, could be considered one of these old wells of our lives. Right? In the Old Testament, and really the ancient world, you know, they had to dig wells so that they could have access to water. And uh, sometimes they, they would move on. Their family, you know, a lot of them were nomads because they were shepherds. And they'd move on, and their wells would slowly fill back up with dirt. Right? Or even in times of war, um, when a neighboring country was upset with you, they would come to your well during the middle of the day or in the middle of the night, and they would fill it in with dirt so that you wouldn't have access to water, you know, the means of life. 
And so either after war, they would have to redig these wells or, or dig something new, which is obviously easier to redig where they already know water is. Or maybe they moved back into old family land and they stumbled upon an old well and they would redig it because it would bring life. And I think that this daily rhythm of prayer is one of these wells of life for us. Right? It's something that we've left behind, and I believe we can redig this connection to God by having a regular prayer life. It reminds me of a verse from Jeremiah. Jeremiah is speaking as a prophet for God in Jeremiah 2.13. He says, For my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water. And secondly, they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. Right? Two evil things. The first, they abandoned God. They abandoned the well right, of living water. And secondly, it says that they dug their own version. Right? A cistern was basically like a shallow well, like a, a small pond, like a really small pond, a deep puddle that they would dig out and they would fill with clay and stuff so it would collect rainwater. Or they would be able to get water from somewhere else and dump it in there. But it says that their cisterns that they tried to make imitate this thing of, of the living waters of God is cracked. And it doesn't hold water anymore. Does that not kind of explain life today for you? Right? That you've been trying to figure out what the purpose of life is for you. And you've been trying to like have enough life to be able to go on living day after day. But it feels like there's never enough. Possibly, your well might be something you've built on your own. And there's this well of everlasting water that God offers to you. Jesus reiterates the same thing in the New Testament in John 4.13 to the Samaritan woman that he meets at a well. Right? Jesus replied to her, he says, Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them giving them eternal life. Prayer is how we tap into the well of living water. Right back in the old days, you didn't make the journey to the well just when needed. Right, that would have been not very smart. You would have ran out of water. You probably wouldn't have been able to make it to the well in the middle of the desert in the heat of the day without water. Right, you went daily. They went morning and they went in the evening in the cool times of the day to refill their water supply. Because they knew they would need it. It would become necessary and they needed to have it when that moment came upon. They didn't just go spontaneously to the well. Tyler Statton in his book, um, Living Like Monks, Praying Like Fools, or Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. Uh, he says, if we want a biblical experience, we must live biblical lives, taking on biblical practices in a new time and place. Guys, the daily prayer rhythm is about fidelity. It's about faithfulness. It has absolutely everything to do with love and absolutely nothing to do with legalism. When Jesus would roll out of the bed in the morning and make his way alone to the mountains to pray, it was love that drove him there. It wasn't his spiritual checklist. It wasn't a scorecard he was trying to keep. For Jesus, being with the Father was his deepest desire. It was the source of his identity, and it was the only way to continue the life that he was living God is not taking attendance. He doesn't have a star chart in heaven, right? When you show up to morning prayer, he doesn't give you a little gold star. When you get to heaven, he's like, you see all the missed stars? Right? That's not what he's up to. What he's doing is he's waiting because he wants to hang out with you. Right? He's always there. His, his star chart's always full, right? Because he's just always there waiting for you to come to him. It's about love. To order your day according to intimacy with God is the lived intention to keep him as your first love. Commitments, not feelings, are how we really show love. The author in the New York Times columnist, David Brooks, defines a commitment as falling in love with something or someone and then building a structure of behavior around it for those moments when love falters. A daily prayer rhythm is just a structure to support our deepest desires, right? So that even when our feelings and emotions betray us, we still turn to God. So what do prayer rhythms look like? Right? And I'm, I'm just going to go 
real grief over what they've been doing for centuries and centuries and centuries of, of daily prayer. And uh, so it's kind of three breaks in a day um, that they would pray for. And the first is prayer in the morning, right? Start your day with God. Right? This isn't about discipline. This isn't about your personality type. You're like, I'm a night owl, so I just spend time with God at night. You know, like, that's cool, but spend time with him in the morning, right? What if you're like, sorry, spouse, you know, I'm a night owl. I'm only going to hang out with you in the evening. Uh, you know, I don't want to see you in the morning, so get out of here before I wake up. You know, be a ridiculous statement. Like, right, I, I am a every time of the day person. I will stay up 24-7 to hang around people. It's a problem. Um, but one of the first things I want to do in the morning, and that I do every morning before I head out into anything else, is give my wife a kiss and tell her that I love her. Because right? it's about commitment. Right? It's about, I want her to know that I love her. Right? So why would we not get up in the morning and spend some amount of time with God? You will be hard-pressed to find a man or a woman who made a huge impact for the kingdom of God who didn't spend time in the morning with God. Mark 1.35 says, Before daybreak, the next morning, Jesus got up and he went out to an isolated place to pray. That was one of Jesus' rhythms. One of the versions says, before it was light outside. I'm not saying you need to be that crazy. Uh, but it was a rhythm of his life to get up and spend some time with God before he did anything else. The author and pastor, John Mark Comer, said, if you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. Right, we preach that here. Right? One of our um, core uh, parts of our purpose statement is that we want to grow in Christ. And we preach that the best way to become a reflection of Christ is to pick up the same habits of Christ. So whatever your morning routine is, I would suggest a new ambition. Maybe a little adjustment or an addition to pray like Jesus taught us. To spend some time with him in the morning. Um, Tyler Statton, the author of this book we're going through, he said that when... God called him, like, he decided to have this desire to spend more time in prayer, that uh, he opened up his Bible to Mark 135, where it says Jesus got up early, and uh, he highlighted it and put it on top of his alarm clock so that when he hit, went to try and hit the snooze button, he would hit his Bible, and then it would remind him that Jesus got up early and that he would get up. And uh, so maybe you need to do something like that. You know, you can name your alarms on your phone and just like, get up, you idiot, spend time with Jesus. Uh, you know, whatever you needed to say to encourage you to get up and maybe five minutes earlier and spend some time with God. Now, there's a normal prayer that um, they pray during their morning prayer rhythm, and that's the Lord's Prayer. Uh, but they don't just pray it like a script. Uh, some people play it, pray it like a script. But the real purpose of that is to pray through it as a guide to your prayer. Right? You go through the Lord's Prayer, and then you add in your own personal conversation with God through it. You know, our Father who art in heaven, like, wow, hallowed be your name. God, you are so great. You're so glorious. Thank you for the things that you do in my life. You know, your kingdom come, your will be done in my life. What, what does that look like? What, what kingdom are you inviting them into? You know, I, I need some extra patience. I'm having a hard time this week. Right, give me today my daily bread. God, I, I need some money to pay my bills. I need food on my table. I have a, a hard test coming up this week. I got, uh, I'm still trying to find a job. Whatever those things are, you lay out your daily needs before him. And lead me not into temptation. Because, God, you know that I struggle with sin. You know that I struggle in these areas. And you confess your sin to him. Don't, don't let the evil one lead me astray, God. Because right? yours is the power and the kingdom and the glory forever. You are the one I want to live for today. Right? Let that be your morning prayer. At midday. Right? This is your lunch or your, a break during your work, whatever. The theme of this time is usually to pray for the lost. Because right? usually you're out in the world at this moment. Now, side note, when we call people that haven't found the Lord the lost, um, it's a word of compassion. Right? It's not a word of categorization. It's not a word of condemnation. It's compassion because we want them found. We're not putting them out there and separating us from them like, oh, the lost. It's like, no, the lost. I want them found. And when we pray for the lost, several things are happening in our lives. We're recovering the shepherd's heart that Jesus has, right? Allowing God to break our hearts for what his heart breaks for. We're taking up our authority as intercessors. Remember that we stand in the gap for those who don't know Jesus yet. 
And then we also take the risk of being sent to them, knowing that God often sends those who pray for them. But there's also a great time of your day to just recenter your life on God. Right? Steal a couple moments away with the love of your life. And remind you of what really matters. And then in the evening, what if instead of spending your commute home stewing about how everything went bad that day, or wishing it was handled differently, or, man, I wish I could have just gotten one more thing done, what if you just simply recounted everything you have to be grateful for from that day? You just walk through it with God. During the Jewish Passover, they, um, the Seder meal, some of you guys attended the Seder meal that we hosted here last year. Um, you will remember this. They, they sing a song of gratitude titled Deinu. Um, we sang it at the, the meal thing uh, last time. But uh, Deinu translates from Hebrew to mean it would have been enough. In other words, they're, they're singing at this time of gratitude to God that, you know, had you just kept us alive, it would have been enough. But actually, you, you came and you rescued us. You did all these things. You sent us out with all this stuff. But it would have been enough of just this. There's a modern translation being used, a, a saying that's like, thank you, God, for overdoing it. Right? So when we pray with gratitude for however long you need to on your way home, thank God for overdoing it. Right? It looks something like this. You know, you're, you're, God, thank you for breakfast today. It would have been enough for it to just been some nutrition for my body, but you made food taste good. Can I get an amen, right? Right, thank you for the people at my work that were kind to me. That would have been enough. But they were also fun and they filled my day with encouragement. Right, that is Deinu prayers. Where it's not just thanks for this, but thank you for overdoing it because I don't deserve most of what I have in my life. And I should be more thankful for that. Right, those three rhythms, if you just take those times throughout your day, will help guide your day, and then the rest of all these prayer things we've been talking about will find its way into your day-to-day, -day, into the moments. Now, Count, Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zizendorf, yes, it's a real person uh, who lived, and he was the leader of a huge revival. This is the Moravian revival, um, if you ever heard about it. It happened in the 1700s, where they, um, this community of refugees dedicated themselves to beginning to pray, and it turned into a 24-hour, seven-days-a-week prayer for 100 years. Unceasing prayer for a whole century. And when someone was talking to the Count, um, asking, what was the secret to this lifestyle of prayer that you guys developed? In the words of Zinzendorf himself, he said, here's the recipe. I have one passion, and it is he and only he. Tyler Statton closes his book with this topic. He says, see, the modern church's best-kept secret is this, that we believe in productivity, but not prayer. We believe in solid programs, above-average teaching, and yet another worship album release. That's what defines church success, right? It's kind of sad. King David in the Old Testament, you guys know, probably heard about him multiple times, wrote a bunch of the Psalms, um, had a whole crazy life. But when he became king, he made a bold first move. He didn't revamp the budget. He didn't build a stronger army or fortify the defenses. He didn't negotiate a new trade deal or a relationship with a neighboring country. Do you know what David did when he first became king? He brought prayer back in. In the center of their nation, open for all. By bringing back the Ark of the Covenant. We've talked about this story. That, that the Ark got captured by some other country. And when David became king, he was like, we need the presence of God back in our nation. Back in our city. And I can't have it any other way. And so he goes and he brings it back. And, and it's a crazy story. There's animal sacrifices like every five feet or something. Because they want to make sure they're doing it right. And that God's name is lifted up. And they bring the Ark of the Covenant back into the city. And that's the first thing he did as king. Could you imagine that, walking into your business, and they're like, we need a new strategy for this next year, and you're like, what if we just prayed a lot? Right, but you know what's crazy? Is it's almost unheard of if I said the same thing for, you know what we're going to do to reach the lost, to reach our community? So we're just going to start having a prayer meeting more. Right? I mean, the sad thing is most of you guys wouldn't come. Right? And that's just real. It's hard for me. Like if I had a prayer meeting every day, I don't think I could make it every day. That's real. That's a problem. 
right? But God is everywhere. So we can have this prayer meetings throughout our lives every day, but we still don't even do that. We take it for granted. David went on after that to make his first budgeting adjustment as king. You know what he did? He didn't give himself a raise. He didn't spend more money on military. He hired worshipers. He hired priests to minister before the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle day and night to bring prayer even more and God even more to the very center. The presence of God was David's political strategy. Right? That, the pattern that emerges from David's tabernacle and his kingdom is this, that if we prioritize the presence of God in our church, you get the kingdom in your city. Everything cycled and was anchored to prayer when big movements of God happen. Tyler wraps up his book with a statement. He says, I have a dream for the church that we will become houses of prayer again. None of us want to spend the rest of our lives uh, cloistered off in socially irrelevant, spiritually dry weekly meetings. What's the alternative? The radical reprioritization. I'm struggling with that word today. Prioritizing prayer. And if the cost is foolishness, count me in. If the cost is sacrifice, count me in. If the cost is faith, count me in. And if the cost is perseverance, count me in. And Tyler is somebody who lives this out. He's been running a 24-7 prayer house for a while. He's pastoring a house now that he runs a whole um, nonprofit about helping add more houses of prayer and, and places to do 24-7 prayer. And yet this is still his cry. Now, before we end this series, I want to offer you some resources to help you on your prayer journey because I don't want it to just end here for you. I don't want you to walk out of here and be like, yeah, that was really nice for those 10 weeks, you know, and, you know, it would have been real nice if it was four, but. All right, is it that sad in here? You guys can't even laugh at jokes now. <laughs> but uh, there's some really cool resources out there. This book that we're going through, like, I mean, I, I breathe, like, Overview of subject from chapter to chapter each week. And so it's a great place to start. Get back into this book. Take a picture of it if you guys want those resources. They're great. Uh, one of my favorite books that has been something I've returned to multiple, multiple times is a book called Secrets of the Secret Place by Bob Sorge. Um, Bob Sorge was a, a pastor and a worship leader who um, had some issues with his vocal cords. When they went in to do surgery, they messed up his voice and he could no longer speak. Um, so he lost his job as a pastor, his, his um, life as a worship leader, everything that he was going to do. And through his struggles, um, God brought him way closer. And uh, I've actually had the chance to meet him multiple times. And uh, this is one of my favorite books of his. He has multiple out there. But um, this is his secrets that he learned while he was going through hardship that drew him into a close relationship with God that allowed him to continue to find purpose in life. And uh, it's a small book. It's 52 chapters, um, but literally it's small. It's like three or four pages a chapter, and it's a great, like, read it for the week. You know, it'll take you a whole year, and to implement that secret into your life for that week is um, a great way to do it. I mean, you can do 52 days with it and things, but it's a great book. Um, there's a book called Red Moon Rising. Um, this is more of a, a story book talking about the prayer movements that have happened over the years, specifically in Europe um, by Pete Grieg. Um, he, it's just an awesome book to really just kind of inspire you to pray and what changes can happen and the things that happen when we spend time in prayer. And then uh, there's also a uh, prayer app called Inner Room. Um, you can download it on any platform from your, your app stores there. Um, it's actually Tyler Statton's organization's app. And um, you can put prayer requests on there and you can put all sorts of different things um, that you would need you know, to be praying about on there, different categories and things. And then you can set up reminders for you to pray for the different topics. It actually also has a really nice walkthrough of um, the prayer rhythms of the day, of what a morning, midday, and evening prayer life could look like. And um, so I, I would consider you or encourage you to download it. I've downloaded it just a couple weeks ago. I'm still trying to figure it out, um, to be honest. But I do think that it could be really helpful. And then also... Um, I don't know if you guys know, we have this thing called Right Now Media that we offer to you guys. Um, if you open up the Church Center app and scroll down the buttons, you'll see it there. Or if you scan the QR code, um, there's a thing called Right Now Media. And if you haven't set it up yet, click the, that button and it will allow you to make an account for free. 
Um, we pay for that for you guys because we believe that it's a great resource for you guys to dig deeper. Um, you can share it with anybody. They encourage us to take it outside of our church walls and share it. So don't feel like you have to keep it to yourself. If there's something on there that a friend would like to possibly learn more about it, send them that same link from the button so they can make their own account. Uh, but on there, if you click our church logo um, in the app, it's like top left corner online. It's like in the middle. It says our name. Um, if you click that, it brings up like our church homepage. You can listen to our sermons there and things. But there's a staff picks um, little category there that we've been adding things to or things that we've enjoyed or things we've done before. Um, but I threw in some on prayer there. Um, one of them by Pete Grieg, a couple other people there that you can go through. You know, there are little video courses um, that take you deeper in prayer. Um, it's another great tool that we offer for you guys if you want to dig deeper into this. So um, I hope that you guys do. I, I, I really believe that this could be a real change, not just like for you personally, not just for our church, but for our whole community, if we became people of prayer. Um, so I, also on your chair, I gave, there's this little card. Um, it's two-sided. Um, and uh, so the one side has kind of basically a, a really short one-liner from each week of this series to just remind you how to pray. Right? So pray as you can, not as you can't. Keep a prayer posture of being still before God. You know, the silent prayers we talked about. Our Father, pray with adoration and relationship. Confession, search me and know me. Intercession, right, bringing earth as it is, on, as it is in heaven. Um, petition, right, your daily bread, going before God and sharing your needs. The middle voice, praying to participate. God, I want to be a part of your will. I don't want just your will to happen to me. Make me a part. I want to participate in what you have for me. Right? Pray for the lost. Uh, persistent prayers we talked about last week. Ask, seek, and knock. And then unceasing prayer, right? Making it your lifestyle, this daily rhythms. And so then on the back is really just a sample little short routine that you could start. Um, you know, it just gives you a brief reminder of what it is. Maybe stick this in your Bible. You know, use it as your bookmark in your journal book so that every day you're seeing it and you're reminded of, of how to pray and when to pray. Uh, maybe you need to stick it on your mirror in your bathroom so that when you go to look at how beautiful you are, you're also reminded to pray to Jesus, uh, you know, and thank him for the good looks that he gave you. Uh, right? Or, or maybe on your fridge, or what is, you know, so that when you go to grab food, you grab the Lord instead. Um, no, but seriously, put this somewhere that is helpful and a reminder for you so that it's not just done today right and so in light of all these things you know we talked about what would it look like if we did a prayer meeting here every day um, I want to try and start a little bit smaller in hopes that we can get to something like that or something more often but um, I want to try and fill as much of our general waking hours um, so from like 5 a.m. till midnight because I, I know it fluctuates for everybody with prayer for our church and for our community. Um, so if you scan that QR code in front of you, or if you open up the app, I forgot to put a little picture of it, but um, there's a button that says something about prayer. Yeah, click here to reserve your time of praying each day. And that's going to just take you to a really basic Excel sheet, okay, because we're not super fancy here. But um, I'm asking you to sign up for a 15-minute time slot somewhere between 5 a.m. and midnight. And please just sign up for one, okay? I know you could easily fill up multiples, but what I want is for each person to take a 15-minute time slot. And you don't even need to pray for that full 15 minutes. Um, but, you know, say you sign up for 10.45 a.m., that you would set a reminder in your phone or the new Inner Room app or something like that to remind you to pray at 10.45. And you would take however long you need at 10.45 to pray for the church and pray for the lost and for us as a church to be able to reach them. Okay? And, and that's it. And I want to fill all those hours. You know, and I want room to grow to, to maybe eventually we have all 24 7, because I know some people work overnight and can fill some of those hours too. Is that something we can commit to? Right? I think, like, it'll make a world of a difference. I believe it will. Uh, for the less techie people, you can go to the resource center afterwards. We'll, we'll help you get signed up. Um, we'll also print off where all the gaps are for next week um, so we can uh, fill those things in as well. But 
I want to end with this. You guys are like, finally, we've been here a long time. Um, and it's not over because we saw baptism. Um, you might have noticed in those scriptures I was showing, talking about the, the church in Acts, that it was like at noon they went and prayed. or They showed up for the 3 o'clock prayer meeting. Um, and some of you guys are like, I'm smarter than that. They didn't have clocks back then, right? Um, I know we recorded that it was 3 in the afternoon. But like, that didn't exist. But you know that theologians can approximate the time because the Jews, the early Christians, their lives were measured by prayer moments. Like those times of prayer in their day was how they regulated their day. Like if they were setting a meeting with someone, it would have been before morning prayer, after morning prayer, right? Or, or after the midday prayer. And when they recorded things, because that's how their day was divided, they didn't have clocks. They didn't have hours. It was, this happened between morning and midday prayer. And after midday to evening or after evening prayer, that's how they recorded everything. Their lives literally revolved around prayer. Communion with God, of, with the God of love was center of their life. It was the anchor for their day. And so as we move forward, I want you to ponder this question. What anchors your day? If everyone just close their eyes for a moment, I just want you guys to ponder these questions as I read them. Right, what anchors your day right now? Is it possibly your workday demands, the buzz of your phone or your email inboxes or your to-do list? Is it just getting to the next meal or passing the hours until the weekend or the next vacation? Because something sets your daily rhythm of life. And it's an important question to wrestle with. What in your life is everything else built around? Now, what if the center of your everyday, you place communion with a God who personifies love? What if the waking thoughts of your day were spent dreaming with God? Dreams as big as kingdom come or as ordinary as daily bread. What if you slipped away at midday for a few minutes or a few seconds because every other force is vying for your attention, but only Jesus has your heart? What if you were to spend your commute home or the final moments before you fall asleep at night recounting all the magnificent and minuscule ways that you saw heaven pierce the earth today? What if your day belonged to the God who loves you without needing to control you? The God whose chief concern is your biggest well-being, who is gently shaping you into the very best version of yourself, and who breathes into your exhaustion with abundant life. We're going to play some music quietly here, and I, I just want you to spend a few moments in conversation with God about what is the anchor of your life. Maybe consider these questions about those things. Does it make me whole? Is it concerned for my deepest well-being? Is it shaping me into the best version of myself or bubbling up my selfishness? Is it leaving me more alive or is it leaving me exhausted? Because whatever you put at the center of your life defines you and forms you into its image. Okay, so chat with God for a couple minutes. Maybe consider how to rearrange things to make God the center.